If you've got a Bible, open up to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. It'll be helpful to have a Bible open to follow along as, as we preach through this book. It's page 950 if you've got one of our hardback ESVs that's there in the pew in front of you. James 1. We'll be looking at verses 2 through 12. We continue through the book of James. And here we are in the, the second section, verses 2 through 12. There's an outline on the there in the worship guide, if that's helpful for you to keep an eye on. Kind of a bare bones outline with the main points. James 1, 2 through 12. Uh, well, this passage, I mean, you could guess from just seeing the readings this morning, from seeing the songs that, that we sung, but this passage is all about suffering. Or the way that James says it, he, he calls it trials. So when somebody we love gets really sick, or when we lose our job, or we have to battle against a particular sin, or we're lonely, or anything else hard in this life that's a result of sin, a trial, suffering, that's, that's the thing this passage is, is about. But what this passage gives us, the Lord here, he, he doesn't give us a list of things to do when we're suffering to try and make it stop. He could have done that, he doesn't do that. He, he doesn't even give us things to do to try and cope. In, in the midst of suffering. No, what the Lord's about to tell us is that we should see suffering in our Christian life as a thing to rejoice for. So the way he says it here, he says to count it joy when we suffer. And that's a pretty wild thing for us to think about. You know, a lot of us have read this verse a lot, right? In the Christian life, I think we forget how wild of a thing it is that James is telling us. He's not saying rejoice in spite of suffering. I think most of us would know, oh yeah, of course I can rejoice in spite of suffering. He goes further than that. He says rejoice because of suffering. Now that's something. That is countercultural. It goes against our nature for sure. Rejoice because of suffering. So hear the word of the Lord. This is James 1, 2 through 12. There the Lord says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be complete and perf perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Okay, so again, the main point is what he began with. Consider it a joy to suffer. Okay, so why? Well, our, our passage gives us answers. It gives us at least four main reasons. These are the points we'll look at as we break down the passage. So first, we'll go through them. First, suffering strengthens your faith to make you more holy. It's the first thing we'll see. Second, suffering strengthens your faith to get you wisdom. Third, suffering helps you love this world less, which is a good thing. And then finally, suffering strengthens your faith to get you to heaven. So for that first point, look at the first three verses we have here, beginning in verse two. 
James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, so how can you consider it a joy to suffer? Well, first, because suffering strengthens your faith to make you more godly. Now, before we get to the content of that first point, let's notice two things right off the bat about this passage. So first, it's not a particular kind of suffering James has in mind. It's not only one kind of, of suffering. No, in verse two, he says, when you meet trials, suffering, when you meet trials of various kinds. So remember, he's writing to these pretty new churches that had sprung up because in Acts 8, there's persecution that begins to rise up against the church in Jerusalem. Remember, it starts with Stephen, that deacon who's stoned to death. Well, persecution begins to rise. So the Christians are kind of forced out of Jerusalem and they go and they settle in the region around it, the region of Judea and Samaria. And, uh, and when they're starting out, they, they've had to leave their homes. So most of them had significant financial struggles. You see that throughout the book of James. It's clear the people he's writing to, they don't have much money, at least most of them. It's, it's hard to find work when you're in a brand new place where nobody knows you. There's persecution in some of those places as, as well. So, so the Christians James is writing to, they were suffering. But James doesn't zero in on like that specific kind of suffering. Now he makes it clear here, he's talking generally. Verse two, trials of various kinds. So when you get injured and that puts your life on hold for a few months, right? That's a hard thing. Or, or your close friend or, or family member passes away. Or your boss, your supervisor at work is, is being really hard on you in a way that's unjustified. Or you find out you're sick in some significant way. Or you find out something bad has happened to one of your kids. So the kind of suffering that you've experienced in life and that some of us are experiencing now and some of us will experience in the future. Well, the Lord tells us here that kind of experience should produce joy in you. So it's all different kinds of suffering. Okay, second preliminary thing to notice is that God is in charge of your suffering. He's sovereign over it. Now, now that shouldn't be a surprise to you if you're a Christian or, or even if you're pretty familiar with the Bible, because the Bible makes it clear God is in charge of it everything, right? Period, paragraph. God's in charge of everything. You know, most people in our world believe that God is in charge of the good things, but many people are uncomfortable saying God is also in charge of the bad things. But we have to remember the God of the Bible, the God of reality, he's sovereign over everything that happens in the universe. Listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Verse 14, there's many verses we could go to. We'll just go to this one, this one. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 14. In the day of prosperity, so the good day, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, so where hard things happen, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one day as well as the other. He makes your good days. He makes your bad days. That's why in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, we're told, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So as a Christian, when you suffer, you're suffering according to God's will. He's in charge of it. But see, the great news about this is God has a good purpose behind your suffering as a Christian. And again, one of those purposes 
is that suffering strengthens your faith to make you more godly. Look at how James builds the case for us. Verse 3. He says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Okay, so James makes it clear when the Christian suffers, that suffering tests our faith. So, so verse 3 is the testing of your faith. That's the synonym with verse 2's meet trials of various kinds. So, so suffering will test your faith. Now that word tests, it doesn't look like he's talking there about it'll tell you whether it's real or not. Sometimes the word tests is used that way in scripture. That's not what's, what's happening here. Now here, James is using that word tests in the way it's used, for example, in Psalm 66 or Proverbs 17, when the Lord talks about burning the impurities out of a precious metal. So you would take silver or gold, you'd burn it. That would get rid of the impurities. That's the idea is that suffering makes your faith more pure. Or could be helpful to think in terms of the next metaphor James uses in verse 4, where he uses that word steadfastness. That word just means endurance. That's the word that was used for somebody running a race, that they would have endurance. They'd be able to finish the race. So, so with that metaphor in mind, verse 3 is saying suffering trains your faith in the way that a runner trains for a race. That's the kind of thing that's happening here. And it, it makes practical sense if you think about it. When you suffer in a significant way as a Christian, that puts your faith in Christ to work, doesn't it? It exercises your faith. During that season of hardship, it's, it's more difficult to trust the Lord's goodness, isn't it? It's easy to trust the Lord's goodness when things are going well. It's much harder to trust the Lord's goodness when things are not going well. When you've got a significant illness or you lose your job or, or a relationship is struggling, it's harder to trust God's goodness when things are going bad. Your faith in Christ has to work harder, doesn't it, during those times. It's like God is using difficulty in your life to, to put more weights on the barbell that your faith is having to lift. That's how suffering works for the Christian. Or, I don't know if basketball players still do this, but guys used to put weights around their ankles. Those tiny little sandbags, you could get them, they'd Velcro around your ankle and you would practice basketball in those. So that then when you took them off, you could jump higher. That's the kind of thing the Lord is doing with suffering in the Christian life. It's like he's putting more weight on the barbell that your faith is having to lift. And that suffering makes your faith stronger. Like verse 3 says, that suffering exercises your faith to make it steadfast, where your faith is trained enough to go the distance, the same way that a runner has to train so, so he or, or she can run the race. Okay, so to use that same metaphor, what's the race that we're running as Christians? What is our faith being strengthened to do? Verse 4 tells us, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be, here's the purpose, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, so your faith as a Christian needs to be strong enough to, he says here, to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, James is not saying as Christians, we're supposed to be sinless in this life. That's not what he's saying. He knows better than that. Okay, so what, what is he saying? Well, I think the key is to look at that word complete. He wants us to be complete. We're supposed to be complete Christians. What's that mean? 
Okay, so March Madness is getting closer. So in our house, as soon as college football ends, all of our sports energy goes towards college basketball, right? So that's what we were doing yesterday. Basketball was on the TV from afternoon until evening. Okay, so there's a lot of good teams this year. A lot of you are happy. North Carolina, they're a good team this year, right? UNC is, is rolling, not perfect, but they're pretty good. Well, when commentators look at UNC basketball and they say they have a complete team, and we're thinking about this word complete, what do they mean? Well, it means they're good at offense and defense. It means that their starters are good, but they also have guys that can come off the bench that are good. It means they start the game strong. It means they know how to, to finish the game, right? They're a complete team. Well, God wants us as his children to be complete. In other words, he doesn't want you to look like a Christian at home, but not look like a Christian at work. He wants you to be complete. He doesn't want you to look like a Christian in your relationships with the church, but not look like a Christian in your relationships with your extended family. He, he doesn't want your words to be holy, but your actions to be unholy. You see, he wants you to be complete. He wants godliness to touch every part of your life. It's the same thing Jesus is getting after in Matthew 5, 48. He uses the same word perfect. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Remember, he's been fussing at the Pharisees who obey some of God's commands, but then completely ignore other commands. Jesus is saying, that's not right. They are incomplete. We're supposed to be complete Christians. He wants us to seek to emulate the Lord in every venue of our life. I've known men, but you know, we can talk generally, but I've known men who were really faithful in vocational ministry. They were really faithful serving on a college campus, for example, and they were horrible to their wives. That's not, that's not right. That's incompleteness. He wants us to be complete. I've known Christians who were really faithful and encouraging church members, some of the most encouraging church members, but they were stealing money at work. They were incomplete in that way. Followers of Christ, we, we shouldn't have gaping holes in our following of Christ. Well, James tells us here that part of God's plan for suffering in your life as a Christian is it would strengthen your faith so your faith can go the distance and fill those holes. So your faith will make you complete. Verse four again, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Annie and Hayes are our middle kids. They have a bunk bed. Hayes is on the bottom, Annie is on the top. Well, as Annie gets bigger, I, I can see some of those slats begin to bow a little bit. And I love Hayes, so I don't want him to get squished. So I'm thinking about need, needing to reinforce some of those slats, right? To hold that bed up. Well, your Christian life in this world, it's regularly in need of reinforcing in certain spots. There are certain slats, you know this, that are weak, that need strengthening. And you'll find that you need a stronger faith in Christ, maybe to be nailed to your work life or to your parenting. Maybe it's your parenting that you feel like is bowing or to your prayer life. We'll need those reinforcements, as verse four says, to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that requires a, a strong faith in Christ. But praise God, part of suffering's purpose in your life is to exercise your faith to make it stronger so that faith can more fully transform those areas of your life that need it.
So keep that in mind when you encounter suffering. That suffering is making you more godly. Think of the areas of of your discipleship to Christ that need strengthening and, and will be strengthened as you're forced to trust the Lord more during those times of suffering. So suffering strengthens your faith to make you more godly. So, like James says, consider it a joy to suffer. Now, the next section, he moves on to talk about wisdom, verses five through eight. And initially, you might wonder, okay, well, what does suffering have to do with wisdom? But, but here's a good trick for reading the Bible. When you're reading the Bible and you have a question like that, let's say you read a section, and then you get to the next section and you think, what in the world does this have to do with what went before it? Well, the place to start, see if there are similar words. See if a word shows up in that first section and then shows up again in that second section. Oftentimes, that's what's tying it together. Well, we see that here. There's a link. The word that clearly connects verse 4 and 5 is the word lack. So look at the middle of verse 4. He says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, first line of verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, okay, so that's our connection. So faith, it's meant to make you complete. Be sure you aren't lacking anything God wants you to have. Well, one thing God wants you to have in your Christian life, one thing he doesn't want you to lack is wisdom. And this is our second point. Suffering strengthens your faith to get you wisdom. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Okay, now right off the bat, what's the Bible mean when it talks about wisdom? It's sort of like a general concept, right? It's kind of hanging out there. What does that mean? What's the Bible mean when it talks about wisdom? Well, wisdom is just the God-centered discernment it takes to live life the way God wants it to be lived. That's what wisdom is. It's the God-centered discernment it takes to live life the way God wants it to be lived. We think about wisdom as thinking the right way. I think most, like if you ask your non-Christian neighbor, hey, what's wisdom have to do with? I think they would say, oh, you have like the right answers. You think about things the right way. That's part of biblical wisdom that's required. But in the Bible, wisdom is much more about living the right way. That's what wisdom is meant to do. We see this over in chapter three of James. So flip a page over if you've got a Bible open. Chapter three, verse 13, he's got this extended section on wisdom. Listen to what it sounds more like. Does it sound more like thinking the right way or living the right way? James 3, verse 13 and following. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So you can see how wisdom is all about living the right way. The way of wisdom is is the way that has good conduct and is meek and turns away from jealousy and, and selfishness. It's peaceful, it's gentle. It's merciful, it's impartial. So you can see as, as scripture defines wisdom this way, it's clearly not an option for the Christian, right? So this isn't like when you go and buy a car and they say, do you want the one that has the sunroof or doesn't have the sunroof? No, this is like when you go to buy a car, it's like the steering wheel. 
Now, every car has to have a steering wheel. The Christian life has to have wisdom. It's at the center of the whole thing because wisdom is all about living life in a way that pleases God. Well, that's the Christian life. That's what we're, that's what we're aiming for. So it's the God-centered discernment to live life the way God wants it lived. And like we talked about last week, our primary role as Christians is to be a servant of Christ. Well, it takes biblical wisdom to know how to serve Christ well. And just a quick note here, but if you're a deacon at our church, then, then a good measure of wisdom is, is required for you to execute that office faithfully. As Christians, we all need wisdom, but Acts 6, it focuses on, on deacons. One of the requirements is to be full of wisdom. But all the rest of us clearly need wisdom too. It's like we're told in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7. This is so great. I love it when the Bible talks to us as if we are simple and stupid like we are. This is Proverbs 4, 7. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. So simple. So we have to have wisdom to please the Lord. But look again at how we as Christians get wisdom. Verse 5 in James 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. So wisdom is something that we need God to give to us. And what do we do when God has a thing that we need from him? Well, we pray. That's why we have that prayer of supplication every Sunday morning. It's why hopefully in our Christian lives every day we're praying and asking God for the things that we need. He has to give them to us. Well, wisdom is one of those things. God tells us to pray and ask him for it. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So that's a good question for us. Do you pray for wisdom? Do I pray for wisdom? And not just with big, big ticket items, right? That's, it's easy to pray for wisdom then. So should I take this job or not take this job? Should we buy this house, not buy this house? Well, yeah, it's, it's easier then to know, oh, I need to pray for wisdom. But but no, do you pray for wisdom just how to know to live your day-to-day -day life in a way that pleases God? We should. That's what wisdom in the Bible is held out for. In fact, one application of this passage is, is that we could start praying at least once a week. I mean, it'd be great if we prayed every day, but maybe even if we just pray once a week, God, give me the wisdom I need to live my life in a way that pleases you. Not just with big ticket things, but no, just day to day, minute to minute. Give me wisdom because I need it. But here's the really good news. God wants to give you wisdom. He wants to give me wisdom. Middle of verse five. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So God wants to give you wisdom, and he doesn't give it begrudgingly, right? It's not like he's hoping you'll forget to ask for it. And then you do, and he's like, oh, okay, he remembered. Here's wisdom. No, he gives generously to all without reproach. The book of James, you might not know this, but it echoes more of Jesus's earthly teaching than any other New Testament book. You might recognize here this, this connection with Matthew 7, 9. There Jesus says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then are evil and know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Look down at James 1 verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights. 
Okay, so every good thing you have is from God. Wisdom's a good thing. He wants to give you more of it. He wants to give me more of it. He wants us to have the resources we need to live our life in a way that's pleasing to him. So pray for wisdom. Do it regularly. But there is a qualification to this instruction. You probably heard it when we read through it a minute ago. God will give wisdom when we pray, but it's supposed to be a certain kind of prayer. There's a quality to the prayer that's required. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. Okay, so what does it take to get wisdom? Well, it takes faith, belief, trust in the Lord. The next phrase of verse 6 says it takes no doubting. So these, they can't be prayers where we say the right words, but we don't really believe God will answer them. They have to be prayers from a heart that really believes in the Lord. Now, James isn't saying we have to have perfect faith in order for God to answer this prayer. No sinner is able to have perfect faith. Your faith, just like other aspects of your life, is, is imperfect, right? Remember the prayer that the dad prays to the Lord when his son is sick. In Mark 9, he tells Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Okay, so there's a degree of unbelief that will exist in in our sinful hearts until we die or or Christ returns. But what the Lord's calling for here is that our prayers should be characterized by faith. Not perfectly faithful, but at least characterized by faith. They should have a substantial faith. You may have been to a a football or basketball game before where the home team's fans did what's called a whiteout, where everybody's supposed to wear white. Okay, well, if if you go to that stadium and you walk up to those fans, they don't all have perfectly white shirts on. No, the vast majority of those shirts have text on them that's another color, sometimes a picture. But when you zoom out and you look at the home stands, what you see is white. That's the kind of thing that's being asked for here. Our prayers don't have to be perfectly faithful. Praise the Lord, we can't do that. But the predominant color of our prayers should be trust in the Lord should be faith. We shouldn't be like a zebra where somebody says, yeah, that, that person, their prayer could be unfaithful with faithful stripes or faithful with unfaithful stripes. No, our, our prayers, the faith in our prayers is supposed to be predominant, supposed to be obvious. Like James says in verse eight, you're not supposed to be double-minded where it's unclear whether you trust the Lord or, or you don't trust the Lord. No, it should be characterized by belief in God and, and not unbelief. Look at the way James describes the alternative. Middle of verse 6. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. One surprise, our family was in Maine for close to nine years. I pastored a church there. One surprise for us was how cold the ocean is in Maine. We should, if we had paid more attention in geography class, we probably could have told you that. But we went to the beach in July and we're expecting to walk into the water and have it feel like a North Carolina beach feels when you walk in the water in July, which is what I grew up with. Well, in Maine, it doesn't work that way. Our feet went in the water and our feet instantly cramped in the middle of July. The water is freezing. However, Lakes in Maine are a different story. Praise the Lord, there's a lot of lakes. Well, since it's a smaller body of water and it's not as deep, 
the sun will warm up the lakes so you can get in the lake and it's comfortable. And one added benefit about going to a lake instead of the ocean, if you've got little kids, is the water is steady. You appreciate that as a, a dad or a mom when you've got little kids and they're walking out into the lake and there are not waves. No, the water is just staying still. Waves in the ocean means it's an unsteady place. It's always changing, but lake water still. Well, James is telling us that as Christians, the faith of our prayers should look like lakes and not like oceans. The faith in our prayers shouldn't be tossed around and waxing and waning and coming and going. It shouldn't be like waves driven and tossed by the wind. Our belief in God as it's displayed in our prayers should be steady. That's a good question for you. Does my faith in my prayers look like that? Am I exercising true trust in the Lord that's steady? Does that come through in my prayers? Even though it's not perfect, do you have a steady and substantial trust that the Lord will do good to you through your prayers? But the good news for us, again, back to the theme of this passage, the suffering that comes into your life, it will make your prayers more faith-filled, which is what will get you wisdom to live a God-pleasing life as you pray for it. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith that suffering strengthens. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. So suffering strengthens your faith to get you wisdom. So consider it a joy to suffer. But third, suffering also helps you to love this world less. It's the third good thing we're told here. Look at what James says next in verse 9. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Okay, so remember, it looks like most of the Christians that James is writing to in these, in these churches, it looks like they were going through material suffering. They, they were struggling with poverty. But look at how James characterizes them in their poverty as compared with the rich. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. So James swaps it. He says the poor Christian is actually exalted. The rich person is actually in the position of humiliation. Okay, so, so why does he say that? How is it that in God's economy, these poor Christians are better off than those who have lots of money? Well, I think it's because of the temptation that comes along with wealth. The temptation that comes along with wealth. Now, we know that having more money than other people is not inherently sinful. Some people throughout church history have talked that way, taught that way. It's not what the Bible teaches. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 it's a passage where Paul is addressing rich Christians, but he doesn't tell them, go out and sell all your stuff, give all your money to other people. No, he simply tells them not to set their hopes on money. So having money, not inherently sinful, setting your hopes on your money, sinful. Every single time. But here's the thing, it's really hard to have money and not set your hopes on that money. That is a hard thing to do. Look at the end of verse 11. 
so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. It's really, really hard to be wealthy and to keep from making the pursuit of wealth your main pursuit. It's hard to do that. You may have heard this quote before. John D. Rockefeller was basically the richest man in the world when he was alive. Well, the reporter comes up to him and the reporter was interested to know, when are you gonna be satisfied, man? You, you keep sort of conquering more and more industry, making more money, when's it gonna be enough? So the way the reporter says it, he says, he says, John, how much money does it take to make a man happy? You might remember what he says, Rockefeller says, one more dollar. That was his answer. And the reporter said he didn't have to think about it. Just instantly thought, oh, one more dollar. You'll never be satisfied, is what he was saying. You're always pursuing more money. Material wealth is dangerous in that way, isn't it? First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving for money that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Or it's like Jesus said in our congregational reading, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. And there's a real delicate balance we need to recognize here when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ. We need rich Christians. The Lord does that on purpose. I don't know if you've thought about that before. We need rich Christians because the gospel is going forth in parts of the world that aren't here, and we need to help pay for that. There aren't Christians there yet to give money for the mission there. No, we're sending missionaries there. That takes money. So our brothers and sisters in Africa that Ken Mambuqua and the other pastors there are trying to raise up, guess what? Those pastors, most of them don't read English. So it's not even like we could just put a book in the mail and send it to them, which costs money. We have to pay somebody to translate that into their dialect, into their language. That costs money and then send it to them. The mission of God takes resources. The Church of Jesus Christ, we need rich Christians, but it's one of the most dangerous jobs in the kingdom. It's one of the most dangerous jobs in the kingdom. So in World War II, the most dangerous job statistically was the guy that would have to run the radio wire, right? There when people are shooting at him. I don't remember what the stats were. They're staggering how often a guy died doing that job. It was the most dangerous job. Listen. Being a rich Christian is one of the most dangerous jobs in the kingdom. And of course, in, in the scheme of the entire universal church, and see, this is where I say that sentence and I say, oh, I'm not rich, praise the Lord. Of course, in the scheme of the entire universal church, we're all very wealthy. Sorry, guys, it's a bummer, it's true. So pray you would not fall in love with money. Oh, it's so easy to do it, isn't it? Pray you would not fall in love with money. Make it, you want, uh, pray you wouldn't make it your chief pursuit like we see in verse 11. Okay, but again, what does this have to do with suffering? Well, these Christians James is writing to, they, they were pretty materially poor. That's, that's their version of, of suffering, right? But like verse two says, God wanted them to count it all joy when they met that trial of, of material suffering well, it seems like he's saying that suffering would help them love money less, and more broadly, it would help them love this world less. Look at the illustration James gives us at the end of, or, uh, gives us in verse 11. He says, 
For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. Okay, the pursuit of money, just like every other earthly pursuit, it, it'll eventually end. You can try and collect as, as much money as, as you want to, as many things as you can, but that pursuit will end at most when you die or until Christ returns. And that pursuit, it could be ended a lot sooner. You could lose your wealth somehow, lose your things. But, but somehow, eventually, the flower of your money will die. It will fall to the ground. And that's such a good reminder. Eventually, your bank balance, it will die and fall to the ground. Your house and your cars, your vacations will fall to the ground and they will die. Your 401k, it'll fall to the ground and die like a dead dandelion. It'll all die. None of it will last. Well, the advantage of, of the poor Christian is that he or she has seen that truth play out in real time. They've already seen wealth let them down in this life. They've seen it. These Christians had lost their assets when they had to leave Jerusalem because of persecution. So it was easy for them to believe the sun would eventually burn up the flower of wealth because they had already seen it happen, right? The, the one who has seen the prettiest, most alive flower in the world eventually shrivel up and die, that's the person who won't put their hope in that flower anymore. Suffering helps you love this world less because suffering helps you see this world is broken and unworthy of our full hope. And in that way, the ones in here who are suffering most have a leg up on the rest of us. The, the illusion that this world is worth putting one's hope in, those of us who are doing pretty well right now, we, we might be faked out by that illusion. If you're doing really well right now, you might think, oh yeah, yeah, let's put our hope in this life. It makes sense, this life is being good. But see, suffering breaks that spell. Suffering lets you see that's just an illusion. This world is broken. When you're suffering significantly, you know that's not true. You're like the ones in Hebrews eleven sixteen who desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Richard Baxter, he's this great Puritan pastor in 17th century England. He says it this way about the Christian being poor. He says, you lose no great advantage for heaven by becoming poor. In pursuing one's way, the lighter one travels, the better. Isn't that good? The lighter one travels, the better. Well, when we suffer, it helps us to travel light. Suffering helps you to love this world less, so consider it a joy to suffer. And again, the place we're traveling toward is heaven. Look at the last thing James tells us that suffering does to benefit the Christian, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Okay, pound for pound, this is the, the most significant good thing that suffering brings to the Christian. Suffering strengthens your faith to get you to heaven. So, so suffering, it exercises our faith. Talked about that earlier. It makes us strong. And our final verse tells us that a strong, steadfast faith, a faith that endures, will get us to heaven. And heaven, that's exactly what that phrase, the crown of life, is talking about. Listen to Revelation 2.10. uses the same language. They were told, do not fear what you are about to suffer. 
Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So see, the crown of life, it's a symbol of eternal life with the Lord in heaven that comes after death. That's what being given the crown of life is. And in verse 12 of our passage, we're taught you have to remain steadfast throughout this life to get that crown. And that's an important truth for us to understand. Only the person who holds on to Jesus until the end will get life in heaven. And that's because if, if someone's faith in Christ doesn't persevere, that means it was never really faith in Christ. That's important to understand. If someone says they trusted in Jesus when they were 17, but, but then they end up living basically a non-Christian life, they're showing that initial faith wasn't real faith. True faith in Jesus is living. It perseveres. To use James's language here, it's steadfast. And it's only that kind of persevering, steadfast faith in Christ that will get someone into heaven. And so, the New Testament gives all sorts of warnings for us to be sure our faith in Christ is real and perseveres. Warnings to continue actively holding on to Jesus. Let me read a few. This is Jesus in Luke 21, verse 19. He says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. You've got to persevere and trust in Christ. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Colossians 1, 23. Christ will present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God if... Indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So the only way to get into heaven is to self-consciously hold on to Jesus until the day you die. But here's the incredible thing about suffering. Like we talked about, God sends suffering into your life to strengthen your faith. So verse 12 tells you you, you need steadfastness to get into heaven. But see, verse 2 told us, trials are what God gives us to produce the steadfastness we need. And again, it's like God is slowly adding weights to the barbell of your suffering. Whether it's financial hardship or losing somebody in death or getting sick, having a, da a damaged friendship with somebody. God has been exercising your faith. He, he works it out enough to where you will continue to hold on to Jesus as your only hope. And on that final day, you'll find out that the perseverance of holding on to Jesus throughout a difficult life, it was infinitely worth it when you're given the crown of life. Like our Old Testament reading from Psalm 126 says, those who sow in tears, so the farmer who has to work is crying, those who sow in tears eventually shall reap with shouts of joy. And what we find out from James is, it's not just that heaven makes our suffering in this life worth it. God actually uses our suffering to get us to heaven. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful. We're so thankful that as Christians, 
Our lives are tailor-made for us by you. There is no mistake, no element of our life, not even our suffering, snuck past you when your back was turned. No, you tailor-made our life. You incorporate all the elements we need, including our suffering, for the purpose of keeping us holding on to Jesus so that our faith will persevere and one day you will give us the crown of life, not because of anything we did, but because of Christ and because we're united to him by faith in him. Father, we pray that because of these things we see in this passage, we would meet suffering with joy for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.